This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested, now playing. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for being with us again. If you want to know what biblical courage looks like, go back and read Acts chapter 4. This is the passage recounting how the apostles Peter and John ran afoul of the chief priests and Sadducees because they were proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They were taken into custody. They were told to speak no further in Jesus' name. And what did they do? They said, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Not only that, but when they returned to the assembly of believers, they prayed the Lord would enable them to speak his word with complete boldness. And the Lord answered that prayer. But what about us? We are in a nation now that is rapidly deteriorating into a post-Christian culture and exhibiting increasing hostility to Christians. A lot of us are asking this question, what do we do now, Lord? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Erwin Lutzer, pastor emeritus of the Moody Church. His latest book is called, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. And Dr. Lutzer, so great to have you with us. How are you? Great to be with you again, Janet. I'm doing fine. I'm glad to hear that. This is a very important book, I think, a very important subject. I'm curious to ask you, just kind of starting out here, you have been in ministry for a long time. When it comes to our culture's views on Christianity, how would you compare the America in which you began your ministry to the America that we're living in now? Well, that's an excellent question, because I began my ministry many years ago. But in those days, even though there were disagreements, they were generally resolved by discussion, maybe argument, and so forth. But thanks to social media, thanks to Marxism also, and thanks to the present culture, what we are finding today is that arguments are not being resolved that way. They're being resolved by shaming by blaming. The radical left says, I disagree with you, you disagree with me, and we just don't have a disagreement, but you are evil. That's why one of the chapters in my book is entitled Vilify, Vilify, Vilify. That's the way you solve the arguments today. Right. You just trample your enemy and then refuse to associate with your enemy if he happens to survive the trampling. I mean, that's that's where we are. And there are a lot of reasons, obviously, why we are where we are, where, where we are right now. Cultural Marxism, obviously, being one of them. But also, you know, you touched on something right there, which I really want to get your take on, and that is the power of propaganda. You wrote about Hitler's cross. You know very well about Nazi Germany and the effect of propaganda on the nation of Germany uh, turning against the Jews. How do you see that era comparing to where we are right now? Well, Janet, again, thank you so much for your question. As you may know, one of the chapters in my book is devoted to propaganda. Yes. The purpose of propaganda is to so change people's perception of reality that despite huge contrary evidence, they will not change their minds. In other words, what you want to do is to put them into this alternate reality where they are in a groove and therefore facts do not matter. 
And we can give many examples of that happening today. One of the ways in which Hitler, since you referred to him, he used propaganda, by the way. Sometimes it is promoted through slogans. Hmm. For example, when Hitler starved children, he called it putting them on a low-calorie diet. Hmm. Today, of course, when we talk about the killing of preborn infants, it is a health decision or the termination of a pregnancy. So language is used to convey a certain idea, and it does this in a way that oftentimes is very, very deceptive. So here's what you do. I discuss what I call cultural streams. There are several cultural streams in a culture, and we've certainly seen that this past year. You know, if you didn't bow to the mob, I mean, I'm, asked, I'm thinking, for example, of Drew Brees, who said that he stands for the flag because of its history and his own family's involvement. Well, the fuse was lit. He had to apologize not once, but twice, yeah. because the mob rule, there was a cultural stream that says, if you do not bow, if you don't kneel, at the flag, so to speak, in opposition to it, if you do not join Black Lives Matter, you are racist, you are homophobic, you are whatever, intolerant. Yes. And so cultural streams can come from two sources. One is the culture itself, and the other is through laws which restrict our freedoms. And so propaganda, propaganda actually can destabilize us. For example, I talk about the ACLU saying that, um, and I'm doing this from memory, but basically what they say is men can have uh, children, men can menstruate, men can do this, that, and the other thing. I mean, are we supposed to believe this stupidity? Yeah. But the idea of propaganda is to speak with such authority that even when you're talking nonsense, you make people feel as if they're foolish to argue against it. Yeah. Oh, you're so right about that. What about pronouns? This is another area of propaganda. You must refer to Bruce Jenner as she. I will not refer to Bruce Jenner as she. Bruce Jenner has some issues that need to be resolved, but that doesn't make Bruce Jenner a woman simply because he gets surgery or grows his hair out. And yet they weaponize this kind of behavior. You must comply. And that's that's what I really am interested in as far as the demand for submission. What what part does that play in all of this? Huge. You know, I say in my book that we are so critical of the church in Nazi Germany. Now, as you know, I've written a book about Nazi Germany, so I've studied propaganda and so forth. But we're so critical of the church. Where's the church, people say? Where was the church? It wasn't standing against Hitler. Janet, I'm not sure that we would do much better than they, actually, because when I began to see how people were going along with uh, with mob rule and how people were conforming to the expected cultural stream, I think that the church today would find it very difficult to stand against that kind of pressure. Yes. Because when your life is on the line and when you are being vilified and shamed by the position that you take, it's very difficult, and especially if you feel as if you are standing alone And yet that's where we are in our culture. And uh, the purpose that I wrote this book, by the way, every chapter 
has a section entitled The Response of the Church, because at the end of the day, I think that the Church has the best um, uh, means of ultimately transformation. Although I didn't write this book to, to uh, you know, reclaim the culture as much as to reclaim the Church. Amen. I hope we get into the whole racial issue, yes, because it's very controversial, but I also want people to understand what the Church believes over against what is being taught in our universities today that is intended to divide the races. That's the whole point that many people don't understand. Absolutely. And and something that I want to pick up on in a little bit more detail when we come back from the next break is this issue that you've raised, the silent church. Would our churches today do much better? Uh, does the pandemic give you any sort of indication when you see so few churches really fighting back against some of these unconstitutional orders from governors like Gavin Newsom in California who allows the abortion clinics to be open and the liquor stores to be open, but the churches have to be shut down apparently forever. Yes, I know that um, I like to give some freedom of conscience here because there are some churches that have opened and have discovered that uh, it spread COVID. So at this point, we can still be more tolerant. But if this continues and if government overreach becomes the order of the day, which it certainly can be, then, of course, we're going to have to push back, and we're going to have to take the position of the early apostles. Here we stand. I mean, I'm quoting Luther now, of course. Here we stand. We cannot do otherwise, so help us, God. And we have to be willing to take the consequences of our decision. That is such an important point. We're going to pause for a quick break. Dr. Erwin Lutzer with us. We Will Not Be Silenced is his book, and we'll be right back on Janet Meffer Today. A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hit a heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only $4.99 
$5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is joining us, and I'm so glad he's here. Pastor Emeritus of the Moody Church and author of the new book, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. One of the things, Dr. Lutzer, that you had raised before we went to the break, and I want to talk about this a little, is race has become this incredibly front burner issue in our culture. And we know that some people are genuinely concerned about racial issues and other people are weaponizing it for further means uh, to an end. But what do you think about the racial issue and how it's being used to guilt Christians, uh, you know, in a way that, you know, I've noticed is in fact dishonest. There's a lot of dishonesty surrounding the issue mixed in with genuine concerns. But how do you see this whole issue playing out? First of all, we have to realize that the whole racial issue has been influenced by cultural Marxism. Marx believed that everything could be explained in terms of the oppressor's and the oppressed. So what has happened is the racial issue has indeed been weaponized, to use your words, and the way it has happened is this. You have the oppressors, which are white, and even if you are born into the poorest white home, still you are a person of privilege. You have those people of color, and they are oppressed, even though many of them are very wealthy and have done very well, but still they are not people of privilege. So totally contrary to the way Martin Luther King saw it when he said that, uh, you know, we should judge one another not by the color of our skin, but the content of our character. So what you have is critical race theory, putting people in these boxes deliberately seeking no possible solution except that the oppressed should overcome their oppressors and have cultural dominance. That's the whole purpose. I quote Saul Alinsky, who the community organizer here in in, uh, Chicago, who said very clearly, do not solve problems, use problems, create problems. So this is deliberately created so that there can be no possible a reconciliation, unless, of course, you have the revolution that they are seeking. Yes. Now, just for a moment, look at how contrast, let's contrast this with Christianity. Christianity comes along and says, you know, the differences between us aren't really that great, because we all stand as sinners at the foot of the cross. We are all guilty before God. We receive God's forgiveness And now we work together to better our communities and so forth. So we don't have to shout at one another across all these racial fences that have been set up for us. And uh, this is why, you know, students go to university, they come back, they hate America, they believe that all of us are racists, and uh, no room at all for individuality. Individuality is actually attacked. No room really for reconciliation or forgiveness. There's only room 
for a revolution. I asked someone at Moody Church. He was born in Ghana, lived in Chicago, brought up there. He's a true African-American, as he puts it. (laughs) What do you think of our university studies? He said, we are growing farther and farther apart every day. We are told that there cannot be reconciliation until whites meet certain demands. And because those demands are impossible, the impasse continues. I can't think of anyone who has said it better than he did. That's really good. Well, the other thing, if we're to be fair here, is if whites are in a no-win situation because there's structural racism, we're all guilty because of our ancestors, even though we weren't alive at the time of slavery, and there's no forgiveness and there's no recognition that we fought a civil war to end slavery and that we had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that ends up being so racist toward the white population and there seems to be no means of escape, which makes you wonder whether or not the race war is just not uh, on its way toward actually harming whites. Nobody wants to go in that direction, but what other conclusion can we come to if we say, if we can't get out of it and you're furious, we don't meet the demands adequately, what happens? Does it turn into a physical fight? Well, it may, but here's the point. You've raised an excellent point. The great emphasis today is that America is to be hated. One of the reasons I wrote this book is so that parents who send their kids off to college, and uh, they can't understand why do they hate America when they come back. So the idea is we're going to attack our history. We're going to say that the Judeo-Christian foundation of our country was thoroughly capitalistic and racist and evil. It must be vilified so that America can be built upon a new foundation, namely the humanistic Marxist foundation. Mm. So... That's the thing. 1619 was America begun at that time when slaves came to Jamestown and when capitalism began. That's the project, you know, that the New York uh, Times had. Yes. Well, are they going to write the history, rewrite the history of other countries based on when they had slaves? Of course not. This is a targeted project to make America look evil. And one thing you will never find, Janet is that these people will compare America with another country. I mean, Saul Alinsky even made it clear that if you do that, it's hard It's hard to get people to hate America. <laughs> so what you do is you criticize it in relationship to its highest ideals. And since America isn't perfect, and we all admit it certainly isn't, what you do is you blame, blame, blame with the hope that people will understand that only Marxism can be the solution. Yeah, that's right. Well, going back to the weakness of the church, though, you have people within evangelical leadership who are embracing critical race theory. You have seminaries and Christian colleges that are embracing critical theory and critical race theory and are turning to the parishioners and saying, you guys are racist, you guys are guilty. I mean, the church should be a place where we do emphasize the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ for whatever sin we actually did commit. How much does this weaken the church when we have people on board with this cultural Marxism who are trying to be the representatives of Christianity to people like us? I tell in my book about a man who's involved in an organization that all your listeners would know about. It's been known for evangelism. He said he went to the last annual meeting and he thought that he had been in a social justice conference. Now, there's a right way to define social justice, but there's also a wrong way. But to your point, what is happening today is that social justice 
is really replacing the gospel. In fact, you even hear evangelicals talking about the gospel of social justice. And I point out that social justice at its best is not the gospel. The gospel is not what we can do for Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus has done for us. So we need to understand this. I even refer to the Southern Baptists because, as you know, at their last convention, they had, uh, what was it, Proposition 9, yes. which was intentionally written to be critical and condemn contemporary race theory, and it was revised by progressives so that it says, even though it isn't a, a worldview, it's helpful in interpreting things, etc. So, yeah, that's too bad, but churches oftentimes have left behind the gospel And there's so much else that could be said about that. The implications for evangelism, which are being washed away in this great cultural stream of social justice. And what we must recognize is this, that we are being more impacted by the culture then we are impacting the culture. Very true. What do we do about it? Because we are quickly moving into times, it seems more and more, where it is going to cost us something to be Christians. We don't want to be like those uh, church members in uh, Nazi Germany who didn't do the right thing. We want to be able to do the right thing, but part of that involves thinking ahead and saying, what is my plan of action here? What, What do you think Christians ought to be thinking about, praying about, and doing at a time like this? Well, first of all, we have to be equipping the church for the culture that is around us and to help them to discern, you know, what is biblical and what isn't. Another thing that we have to fight against, Janet, I point out that the cell phone in your teenager's hand does more to inform his or her worldview than going to church for an hour a week or attending a Sunday school class. So it has to begin with individuals, it has to begin with the families. Churches need to strengthen their instruction. And then, yes, what we need to do is to teach the church that throughout 2,000 years of church history, for most of those times, it was costly to follow Christ. And you did lose your job, and you were marginalized, and you were vilified. So that's the era in which we are entering. For some people, we've already entered it. But we need to take that. Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Great is your reward. We have to go back to early Christianity. Well, we do. And and going back to that passage that I had cited at the beginning of our interview, Acts 4, I love that passage because here were these apostles. They just didn't fear anything but God. I mean, that's what it really comes down to, doesn't it? Don't fear man, fear God. Easier said than done sometimes. But perhaps that's why we need to go back and pray as they did. Lord, you know, grant us a complete boldness to preach your word at this time. And I give examples of martyrs who are willing to give their lives. And, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they feared God more than they did the flames. Yes. And so they were willing to be thrown into the fire. And um, God is going to have to birth in us that kind of thing. Now, I end the book with a chapter, Strengthen What Remains, the Words of Jesus to Sardis. And one of the things that I point out is that even though this church no longer saw the world as its enemy and had submitted to the culture, Jesus does say, but there are still some of you who have not soiled their garments 
and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is to appeal to those who are still standing strong, encourage them to stand stronger, and encourage others to join them. That is wonderful. Dr. Erwin Lutzer, We Will Not Be Silenced, is his great book. And Dr. Lutzer, always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janet. You are very welcome. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested, now playing. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. The Word of God tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, that is a very sobering passage to consider, even if you've known the Lord for years. And yet, we must confront the reality that there are people who consider themselves to be Christians, but are still dead in their sins and transgressions, embracing the faith outwardly, perhaps, but inwardly are still unconverted. These are the ones who are in danger of hearing from the Lord, depart from me. I never knew you. How can you know for sure that you are a Christian? That's what we're going to be talking about today with Mike Gendron, founder of the ministry Proclaiming the Gospel and author of an excellent tract on the subject called True Faith or False Hope. How can I be sure? And Mike, it's wonderful to welcome you back. How are you? Well, Janet, it's good to be back with you. Thanks so much for having um, having me on your show. It is always an honor to have you here, Mike. You know, in any discussion of salvation, we have to start with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we can't assume that people even know what it is. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a lot of people who are falsely converted. But if you would, how do you lay out what it means to be saved, to go from uh, sin and death to eternal life? Well, Janet, the gospel is really simple biblical truth coming out of the infinite wisdom of God. We know it's forever settled in heaven, and it's the great divide that separates a human race into two groups for all eternity, and that's how divisive it is, and we know that the gospel is the salvation of for all who believe it. We see the power of God is inherent in that salvation in the gospel message from Romans 1.16. But we know that the Lord accomplished a lot in order to save sinners completely and forever. We know that righteousness had to be perfected because no one can gain heaven apart from the righteousness of Christ. And that's given as a gift to those who will trust in him. A lot of people don't realize the reason Jesus had to die. It was to satisfy divine justice because God cannot overlook sin. All sin must be punished. And so when Christ went to the cross, he went to bear the sins of his people so that those who repent and believe in him could be completely forgiven. We know that blood had to be shed because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, and Christ did that for us. We also know that reconciliation had to be achieved because sin separated us from God. And one of the great miracles that took place on Calvary's cross when Christ gave up his spirit was the veil, the six-inch veil separating sinful man from the Holy of Holies, was torn open from top to bottom, showing that now 
through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we have access to God, and Christ has been the mediator of that reconciliation. We also know that death had to be conquered and salvation had to be secured. And so this glorious gospel of grace gives us the assurance that if we're trusting Christ alone, then he has assured us eternal life, the complete forgiveness of sins, a perfect right standing before him forever. And that's the glorious gospel that we're all called to proclaim. It's wonderful. Now, there will be people, though, who will say, hey, I believe all that. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe he rose from the dead. I've believed that all my life. How can you possibly make me wonder whether or not I'm a Christian? What would you say about these two different kinds of faith? Yeah, that's a good question, because the Bible does speak of two different kinds of faith. There is a dead faith that originates in man as he gives mental assent to certain truths about Christ. And and what you've just explained there, Janet, is the history, the historical account of Christ, that he was a man that died on a cross and was raised three days later. But that's uh, that's historical faith. When you recognize that Christ died as a substitute for you, that he took upon your sins and he gave you his righteousness, then by repenting of any false way, and trusting Christ is the only way, that is a God-given faith. And at that very moment that you have been given God-given faith, God has also granted you repentance, and so you become a new creature in Christ. And the real, I think, evidence of this is a changed life. When you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, then your new heart will produce good works as evidence. And that's not to say that we are saved by good works, but... I think the Apostle Paul made it very clear that we're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. But then in the very next verse in Ephesians 2.10, he says that now you have been saved, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so just as a tree is, um, the purpose of a tree is to produce fruit. The purpose of a born-again Christian is to, to produce fruit for the glory of God. Yeah, and absolutely. so that's the evidence that we really have true-saving faith. Now, you mentioned a very key word there, which is repentance. And many people have different ideas on what repentance ought to look like in the Christian life. And some will say, well, I'm sorry for my sins, and I confess my sins to Christ and ask him to come into my life, but I don't feel like I'm weepy or, you know, I'm not really mourning. I don't remember going through any kind of intense experience like some other people I've heard about. What would you say about repentance and emotion and how all those things should manifest themselves when you really are saved or coming to Christ for the first time? Well, repentance, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and it simply means a change of mind, and whenever you change your mind, it produces a change in direction. The Bible speaks of two different paths to eternity. There is a narrow way that leads to life and a broad way that leads to destruction, and when you recognize that you're on the broad way because you've been abiding in God's Word and you now know the truth, then you have to change your mind from the false way that you were traveling and get on the narrow way, which leads to life. And so repentance is a change of mind. It's produced by godly sorrow for your sins. And God is the one that grants repentance, just as he gives the gift of faith. And so a true born-again Christian will experience both godly sorrow and repentance along with faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's right. Well, and you mentioned something very important, which is that this is a God-given faith. It isn't as if you can go to Christ and leverage faith out of him and make yourself a Christian. We hear a lot today about you need to make the choice, you need to make the decision, and of course, you do need to come to Christ. But what is the differentiation that you would emphasize when it comes to our part in our salvation versus God's part? Well, we know from the Scriptures, God's holy word, that salvation is all of God from beginning to end. He's the one that begins a good work in us, and He carries it through to completion. Janet, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. The only, the only way we can come to the cross of Christ is with empty hands of faith, recognizing that God is the author of salvation. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so when we're weighted down by our sins, like the publican was in Luke's gospel, convicted of his sin by the Holy Spirit, he will cry out to God for mercy. And it's really interesting because when you look at conviction and conversion, until the sinner is convicted of sin, he can never be converted from sin. And until the sinner confesses his sin and repents, Christ cannot be rightly claimed as Savior. And so we see that the sinner knows that he has sinned and that his sin is condemned into hell, and then Christ will be of value to him at that point. But so often today, I think many professing Christians just believe the historical fact that Jesus died for the sins of the world and was raised three days later, and they feel like as long as they know that, then they're part of God's plan of salvation. But there definitely needs to be conviction, conversion, and that comes with repentance and faith. It sure does. So when we're looking at Second Corinthians 13, the, the passage, verse 5, that I mentioned before about examining yourself to see whether you are in the faith, what should that examination entail? Well, I love to take people to the first epistle of John. I often share with them that that is a picture of God's family as you read the scriptures in First John, you will see what a Christian looks like. And so you can read the epistle and you can see that these are the characteristics of what a born-again Christian looks like. In First John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so what things is John written? Well, the first four and a half chapters. And so you go back and you read those and you see, am I included? in these scriptures. I'll tell you what, hang on. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, there's more to talk about. We'll go to a break and come back with Mike Gendron talking about true faith or false hope. How can I be sure? Stay with us. We'll be back. Hi, everyone. This is Janet, hoping you had a wonderful Christmas celebrating the birth of our great Savior, Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. And so as we come to the end of 2021, I just wanted to let you know that my time to speak on Janet Meffer today is ending as well. I've been a nationally syndicated Christian radio host for the past 12 years, including more than six great years hosting this show. Now, 
now I believe the time is right for me to move on to the next thing the Lord has for me to do. The greatest blessing I've ever received in my life is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've been really privileged to help keep you informed on the news and issues of the day and to try to offer you biblical encouragement from a Christ-centered perspective. I want to thank the owners and managers of all the wonderful Christian radio stations who have aired us all these years. I want to thank all our great sponsors as well and the ministries who have made this program possible. And most of all, I want to thank you. You've tuned into this show. You financially supported the ministries you've heard about here. And I know you've prayed for me and sent us so many encouraging emails. Thank you. We truly are a family and I will really miss all of you. But you can still find me at JanetMefford.com. So I just want to encourage you from 2 Timothy 4. No matter what the future holds, I would implore you to keep fighting the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. Thank you again for listening to Janet Mefford today and God bless. From Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine comes American Underdog. Undrafted out of college, quarterback Kurt Warner found himself stocking grocery shelves while trying to hold on to his dream to play in the NFL. I have been working for this my entire life. God is going to do something great with you. Based on the true story, American Underdog, rated PG, panel guidance suggested, in theaters everywhere now. More information is available at AmericanUnderdogInspires.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. How do you know you're a Christian? This may not be a question that is posed to you very often, especially if you are a Christian, but some of us aren't so sure. Maybe some of you who are listening have been in church for many years, if not your whole life, and you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you accept that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you're all on board with the Apostles' Creed and all the rest, but you're really not sure. Deep down, when you put your head on your pillow at night, you're not really sure that if you die tonight, you would go to heaven. And that's what we're discussing with Mike Gendron, who heads up Proclaiming the Gospel, a wonderful ministry, and has written a great tract on it, True Faith or False Hope, How Can I Be Sure? So for that person who's listening, Mike, who says, I want to examine myself to see whether I'm in the faith. I want to know what a Christian really looks like. And we do have verses in the Bible that say, as you mentioned from 1 John, that you may know that you have eternal life. Where, how do you get from one to the other to know that you do have eternal life? Well, biblical assurance should not be based on a past decision that someone has made, but it should be based on a present reality. In other words, since my conversion, have I seen an increased pattern of obedience in my life and a decreased pattern of sin in my life? Has there been progressive sanctification has, I, has my heart given me new desires to love Christ above all things? Has he become the treasure of my life? You know, one of the tests we see in First John chapter 2, verse 15, is do we love God more than the, we love the world? Mm-hmm. And so if a person claims to be a Christian and he is so attached to the world that he has no time for God, then that would be a red flag. And so there's also some diagnostic questions that we can ask, especially people from the Orthodox faith. Do you trust Christ and His Word above religious traditions? Hmm. Do you submit to the supreme authority of Christ over any other authority? Do you trust His finished work of redemption and His perfect righteousness, or are you trusting your own filthy rags of righteousness to qualify you for heaven? And so these are some good questions that we can ask professing Christians who show no sign of being born again. 
Right. So it is more than just whether or not you have the right doctrine and assent to the right doctrine, but there also has to be that trust and really coming to Christ and knowing you're on the narrow way. Now, when you talk about the narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction, this has always been, for me at least, one of the most scary portions of Scripture, because when you see that most people will be on that broad road, that is terrifying, Mike, because for many Christians, it can send them into a spiral of freak out, if you want to say it that way. How do I know how narrow the way is? And what if I'm really not on the narrow road and I'm on the broad road and I just don't know it? There, You can get into this glut of uh, worrying about it to the point where you can't see straight anymore. How do you counsel somebody like that who is just, you know, really full of a tender conscience and says, I, I just don't know if I'm on that narrow way. I want to be, but I'm not sure that I am. Yes, another great question, Janet. We see the context of the Lord speaking of these two paths to eternity. The context is that there will be false teachers standing in front of the narrow way saying it's not here, it's the broad way. So both ways are marked heaven, but in order to find out what the true way is, you have to diligently search the Scriptures. In in Luke's Gospel, Jesus said you must strive to enter the narrow gate, And that's because you've got false teachers trying to mislead you and deceive you. And I like to picture the narrow gate as being so narrow that the only thing you can bring through the narrow gate is your sins. In other words, you need to leave everything else behind. You need to leave your good works, your own righteousness, your sacraments if you're participating in those. You just need to leave everything behind, trusting Christ alone. We know that the narrow way is by grace. And if it's by grace, it's not of works, so that no man may boast. So if anyone is worried about which path they're on, I think it really needs to come down to this. Am I trusting anything other than Christ, his word, and his righteousness for entrance into heaven? Because the broad way is entered by people who have their own righteousness, and they think that by standing before God one day that their righteousness will qualify them for heaven We need to point them to the righteousness of Christ. It's an alien righteousness that we need to trust in and not our own. And before anybody can be declared righteous, they need to be stripped of their own righteousness. You think of the publican and the Pharisee, don't you, Mike, where you have one who is saying, oh, I thank God that I'm not like the others. And you have the other one who can't even look up and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a difference between the two. Only one went home justified, and the one with godly sorrow who cried out to the Lord was the one. That's it. Exactly right. So what would you say, Mike, would be some examples of the signs of a false convert? What would you expect to see in somebody who thinks he's saved but really is not? Yeah, I I think a zeal for God without knowledge. You know, we see that in Romans chapter 10. So just because a person is zealous for God, if they don't know the Bible, then they can be misled. We also see another mark would be a knowledge of God without obedience. And Paul wrote that to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16. So if you don't have an increasing pattern of obedience in your life, then a knowledge of God is not going to do you any good. How about love of God without love for Christians? Mm -hmm. We see that in 1 John chapter 4. Do you love God and do you love his children, or do you um, love the world and its people more than you love God and other Christians? How about an unwillingness to forgive others? In Matthew 6, uh, Jesus said, 
if you're unwilling to forgive others, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. But the mark of a true Christian, we see, is those that have been forgiven will forgive others, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32. So those are some of the characteristics of a false Christian. I think a lot of times we ask people if we're concerned about whether or not they really know Christ is, why did Jesus have to die? And a lot of times they will say, because he loved us. And my response is, that was his motivation. But why did he have to die? And it's amazing how ignorant people are of the reason Christ died. It was to satisfy divine justice. And people think, oh, my God's a loving God. He wouldn't send anyone to hell, but yet he would not spare his own son. When Jesus became sin for us, God poured his wrath out on him. So what chance does anybody have of avoiding the justice of God without coming to Christ alone as their substitute. Exactly. What you think of Hebrews 10.31, where it says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet we often hear about a God today who's just like a divine Santa Claus. He just wants to dole things out to us, and he'll wink at us if we make a mistake, and he'll overlook it. This is a really scary position for people to be in if they do not fear the Lord. And yet, even in the church, there doesn't seem to be really a consensus on the need to fear the Lord, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, unfortunately, the 21st century church has invited the world into its assemblies, and it's lost its desire to stand for God's truth. And so when people in the pew aren't hearing the truth of God's Word being preached, then they have no way of discerning truth from error and You know, I I think there's a great deception going on in our modern churches today. We've exchanged the culture for Christ and wholeness for holiness. We've substituted synthetic gospels for the gospel of God, and so people are just so easily deceived because they do not know the truth. And more than ever, I think we need to be discerning people because the Lord said before He comes again, there will be great deception on the earth. And aren't we seeing that in our churches today? Janet, I tell people today that our our churches have become huge mission fields. We've Mm -hmm. got Satan planting so many tares in our churches today, false converts that have been victims of deception, either victims of compromised gospels or victims of unbiblical methods of evangelism. And so we have to preach God's gospel and do it God's way in order to see wheat come into the church. I love that you said that because I feel the same way. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you about this, Mike, because there tends to be an assumption on many people's part that if you're in the church and if you say you're a Christian, then you are one. And yet you look at the statistics from some of these surveys that have been taken about people who don't really believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God and the Bible isn't really that important. And you, and you quickly realize that sometimes the word evangelical doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. That's right. We're in that... Um Laodicean church age where people are lukewarm and the Lord will spit us out of his mouth. So more than ever, we need to be ambassadors for Christ and preach the truth so that people that have been deceived will come to know the true Savior. Amen. And as you say, Mike, may God grant people repentance leading to a knowledge of the true gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, a wonderful tract. You can check out Proclaiming the Gospel at proclaimingthegospel.org. As always, it's a treat to have with us Mike Gendron. Mike, God bless you. So wonderful to have had you on again. 
Well, thank you, Janet. God bless you as well. Thank you so much. And we thank you for tuning in today. Our website, as always, is JanetMefford.com. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Now playing.